1: Everyone welcome to the first episode of the Keep or Cut podcast on the Pictureless Podcast channel. My name is Pete Ball, uh and I'm here with Chad Young. Chad, what's going on, man? Not much,
2: Pete. Glad to be here. Excited to get this thing kicked off.
1: Heck yeah, man. I mean, it's a, it's about time. We've been anticipating this for a while. Um kicking around ideas for what the podcast is going to be about and we're going to put some rubber to the street right now and get things kicked off so first of all keep or cut it's kind of a unique name hopefully you guys can appreciate having two k's we understand that the word is spelled incorrectly for cut but uh you know we got a little play on the strikeout logo there so that's what that's all about we're a podcast that's going to focus really on the long term okay but in particular regards to keeper leagues and odd new leagues which i'm going to let chad explain in just a second he's our resident odd new expert um But with this, with this podcast there's going to be a lot of overlap, right? We're going to be, yes, of course, you know, we're focused on keeper leagues. um, We're focused on the long term. but when we talk about fantasy, particularly when we're in the thick of the season, there's going to be overlap in your redraft leagues, in your dynasty leagues. um, But we're always going to try to connect it back to keeper leagues. Mm -hmm. Chad, with that said, I'm going to turn it over to you. Let us know what is the deal with Otnew. I'm in your league for the first time this year and I am, oh man, I'm in the thick of it already. And it's January.
2: That is sort of the beauty of AutoNew is you're always in the thick of it year-round. It's a fantasy format. You can find it at AutoNew.Fangraphs.com. A fantasy platform that was based around this idea that traditional fantasy leagues don't let you act like a real GM. You're not dealing with salaries. You're not dealing with a full 40-man roster. You're not dealing with year-round decision-making. AutoNew was developed to solve all that and to, to make it feel a little bit more like a, a real GM would. It, it fits into what we're doing here because it is it, it's effectively a keeper format. It's a keeper format with salaries. Rosters are 40-man rosters with $400 salary caps. Every player's salary goes up every year. And you got to make decisions uh, right around now, actually, we're coming up to to deadline day where you got to make your decisions on whose salary is still worth it and whose isn't. Uh, it's a little bit like in a non-tender deadline for a real GM. And you got to make those decisions and figure out what you're going to look like going into the season. Get yourself ready for the next auction. We'll talk a lot more about it. I'm sure people have more questions about it. Pete, I know you've got questions about it as you're getting into your first league. <laughs> we'll definitely cover that in more detail. But that's the basic, right? It's a, it is a salary-based keeper format that I think add some interesting dynamics and, and a podcast like this will be a perfect place to talk a little bit more about some of those things that differentiate it from redraft or even from dynasty. Awesome.
1: I, and I definitely have an infinite amount of questions, Chad, about news. So those are going to be coming our way. And I realize I kind of skipped over who we are, Chad. I think we should probably make that clear. So my name is Pete Ball. I write for Pitcherless. You can follow me at, at B baseball on Twitter I've been playing in fantasy keeper leagues for about 15 years now so I've got plenty of experience and that that's kind of the gist with me um, I'm hoping I can bring a lot to the table in regards to providing you guys with some keeper league insights and Chad what about you your background thought new and all
2: that? yeah so my name is Chad young you can find me on Twitter at Chad young I've been also playing fantasy baseball for a long time I talked a little bit a minute ago about Auto new Part of the reason I know so much about it is I helped develop new back in the day. Niv Shah, who's the guy who really runs the show at Outenu, is a, a good friend of mine. I've known for years, and. We sort of looked at the fantasy baseball landscape about 20 years ago and said, we could do something better. And so we tried. <laughs> and here we are. And we'll, you guys will get a chance to learn more about that. Um, I also write for Pitcher lists. I've always played in keeper leagues. I've always been sort of a fan of the long-term view and sort of having the opportunity to not just build for this year, but build for the future. And so that's what I'm here to talk about. When I talk fantasy baseball, that's what I want to talk about. So I'm, I'm excited that we're going to have an opportunity to, to focus on that
1: that's awesome i'm sure you guys can tell chad and i would have been the kind of people who when we get on mlb the show or something like that we're going to franchise mode and we're playing that thing up until the year 2047 when none of the players in the player pool are even real mlb players looking long term baby so the one twitter account we haven't mentioned yet is of course our podcast twitter handle you want to follow us at at keep or cut and that is with a k cut with a k k u T. That's where you'll find us. And that's where you'll find all our new episodes throughout the season. So Chad, if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's get into this. Yeah, let's do it. We're going to start by talking not about on new, but about ADP values heading into 2021. And of course, looking long-term Chad, you and I've spoken in the past about breakout players who are young and who never had that kind of hype, right? And, and some problem that I've had with Kind of the fantasy industry as a whole, not that I'm some like revolutionary, but it's this tendency to see a player who does not have a lot of hype coming out of the minor leagues, right? Or or a lot of hype going into the draft, coming out of college, whatever the case may be. Um, You know, you read the scouting reports and it says things like, all right, projects to be, you know, maybe a late inning reliever or a back of the end rotation piece. And then we as fantasy owners, we sometimes see that and say, "Okay, forget about him. You know, I I don't care that he just dominated the Tigers because the Tigers stink. And, you know, this is irrelevant. But then those guys continue to perform well, right? Some some of them do. Some of them do continue to perform well. And we continue to ignore them because of that. We just assume it's going to collapse at some point. And I think a good example of that that we talked about is Jose Iglesias, right? He was a guy who coming up, there was no bat. There just wasn't any bat. And I got excited because I saw him working a lot with Dustin Pedroia, not physically, but I heard them working together. I don't work out with those guys, but I was like, you know what? That's that's a similar profile. Like just just go for contact, etc. And although he eventually got got traded, obviously, and didn't you know learn too much from Pedroia, I would guess. Nevertheless, he's developed into a really good hitter. So much so that he was in the top percent on stack cast and expected batting average. And I think there are other guys out there like that, chat.
2: Yeah, I think there are. And I think, you know, another guy who comes to mind for me as someone who's who's even gone to the next tier with that is, is Jacob deGrom, who when he first came up, there's a lot of like, no one really knew who he was. I don't remember hearing a lot about him before he came up. I just went over and was looking at something that Eno Saris wrote about him after the 2014 season, after his breakout season, right? So deGrom in 2014 comes up, throws 140 innings with a 2.67 FIP, really, really good year, Eno made this comment about any analysis that ends up with deGrom outside the top 25 is ignoring the huge strides he's made. And it's like, that seems fair in retrospect, right? Outside the top twenty-five. But the thing is, people were coming at DeGrom at that point and saying, I don't know, is he a top 25 guy? I'm not really sure. To the point that Eno felt that he had to make the statement of, no, no, if you're if you've got him outside the top twenty-five, you're missing something here. Well, we know now five years later. Even top 25 was a ridiculous undervaluing of of what DeGrom was capable of. If you look at his numbers, it's not that he made huge strides after that. Like I said, he had a 2.67 FIP in 2014, 9.24K per nine, 2.76 walks per nine, kept the, the home runs low. The next year his Ks went up less than half a K per nine. His walks did go down a full walk per nine. His FIP basically didn't move. It was 2.70. So it's not like he came in and then suddenly had a second breakout, which is why he's now, you know, the top or one of the top pitchers in fantasy. He just established himself at that level from the beginning. And I think coming out of that for 2014 season into 2015, you still had a lot of people who are saying, "Yeah, maybe he's top 20, maybe he's top 40. We'll have to see. Um, I think it's a really good example of a case where, anybody who looked at that and said, no, this guy's legit. And the fact that there wasn't hype about him shouldn't change that is probably very happy in a keeper league where they picked him up and have been able to sit on him for half a decade.
1: That is such a great example. Right. And now look, I'm not going to promise anybody I'm going to find you the next Jacob DeGrom. Right. But with that said, we are in an age of information now with fantasy baseball, where like, if you want to get a leg up, you just, you have to find that information, you have to be willing to look at look at data and sorry, what was this guy expected to do? But what's he actually doing? Um, and maybe what adjustments has he made that could allow me to have some kind of intel that'll separate me from the pack? I remember, I think it was two two years ago. There were two pitchers that like everybody knew they were breakout candidates, and that was Shane Bieber and Nick Pavetta. If you looked at any sleeper list <laughs> across the internet, it was listing Nick Pavetta and Shane Bieber, And it's like, okay, we get it. Everybody knows what they could be. We got to take it a step further and find those guys who may actually be breaking out a little bit under the radar because it wasn't expected. Chad, I have three examples. And I think these three examples are one guy who's officially, in my mind, kind of proven he's graduated from this. He's a guy who came in with with like no hype and just kept performing until finally he got some respect. That's Lords Guriel Jr. I got a guy who I think it's happening to right now. You and I have talked about him in the past, and that's Anthony Santander. We just refuse to give this guy credit, even though he's mashing the ball. And then there's one who I think is just entering it. You know, I am a Red Sox fan, so I should have mentioned that earlier. I'm a little bit of a homer, but Tanner Hook. Uh, we have to look at what Hawk is doing um, in terms of his, uh, especially his arsenal, uh, where he pitched very well this year, despite throwing a four-seamer that's, that's not even that good, and that's not his bread and butter. So why don't we dive in right away with the easy one, uh, Loris Gurriel Jr., who every single year, Chad, he seems to be improving in areas that you look for to see actual tangible change.
2: Yeah, his last three years, or he's been in the league three years, came in as a 24-year-old without a lot of I guess without a lot of seasoning, I would say how he came into the league. And that first year, he really struggled to draw walks at all, 3.4%. It's up to 6.3% in this past season after going up. It went up 3.4 to 5.8 to 6.3. His strikeouts haven't made quite the same strides. He started at 22.4, but it jumped up to 25.1% the next year and then came back down to 21.4 this year. So you're seeing that plate discipline, that ability to sort of recognize pitches, his chase rate has dropped. Every year, his he actually increased his Z swing this year, which is which is a good thing, right? I think one of the things you want guys who are selective, but you you want them to be selective and then to try to mash the balls that they can mash. And so he's from a from a plate discipline standpoint. You're seeing this constant growth and improvement of a guy who is doing a better job of recognizing what pitches to swing at, what pitches not to swing at, and going after the pitches he can do damage on.
1: Absolutely, and and you hit the nail on the head there when you mentioned the chase rate because to me, like again, we're looking for areas in which he can improve upon. And the strikeout rate, it's not that bad right now, um, but it's it's survival, right? Players are striking out more than they ever have before. So last year was 21.4, and that is improved from 2019. But again, it's a much smaller sample size. Although in 2019, he only played 80 games. We're still waiting for that full season from Gary L. Jr. But bottom line, we can see the improvement, right, in the chase rate. And I look and I say, all right, well, how much can he improve? Well, that 34% chase rate, that is still below average. The number is too high. So if he gets closer to that MLB average of about a 28% chase rate, it even just gets a little closer. He's going to continue to cut down the strikeouts. He's going to continue to put the ball in play at a very hard rate. So I think there's a lot of potential there with Gurriel Jr. And now look, he's being drafted, at least the most recent time I looked, he was being drafted as a top 100 player. But if you got this guy in your keeper leagues, in your dynasty leagues, in your new leagues in the last two years, not only have you gotten this amazing production when he's been on the field, but you've got him really cheap and you got him for basically nothing because no one else was willing to accept those changes that he made. In 2019, it felt like June, I think it felt like he was hitting a home run every night. Um it was either June or July. that's just buy in, ride it and if if he's that young and is showing improvement, take advantage yeah, of it. yeah.
2: He seems like a guy who I think you're right. The people just took too long to to accept that he had had broken out the way he had and I look a- across my auto new leagues. he is a guy I did buy in on and I've got him on a handful of rosters, but I've got a few rosters where I have. <laughs> really deep middle infields where I've got him and Brandon Lowe. I've got Gavin Lux, and on I'm one of those teams. Uh, Keston Hiro was on one of those teams. Gurriel's the guy I'm not trading. He's established himself. I feel really good about what he's capable of. I still don't think perceived value has caught up to what it should be. I'm going to sit on him for for as long as I can. His big risk i think in longer term leagues is he's been a middle infielder he's going to lose that very soon if he if he hasn't already in auto new leagues guys are keeping eligibility they had in 2019 the 2020 season basically isn't going to screw with players eligibility and so he'll still be available at middle infield for for at least another season but my guess is that's it. I don't think he's going to keep getting reps at second base at all. He is going to shift to being outfield only, which is going to change that long-term value in these keeper leagues. That is something you have to think about if he's if he's lost or is going to lose that eligibility. But man, even as an outfielder, he's not as valuable as he, is, as he is as a second baseman, but he's still pretty valuable. He's a, he's
1: a really solid, solid bat. No question about it. No question about it. And again, it's about, it's about finding that value. You make a great point about the position eligibility. I mean, that Toronto infield is going to be pretty crowded pretty quickly, and that's going to give him the boot. But the fact that he's shown that flexibility, if there is an injury there, and let's be real, I mean, Bo Bichette has not been you know injury-free. That could bump Loris Gurriel Jr. back into the infield. Just get us that eligibility for another year. That would be awesome. Chad, if you don't mind me asking, what is the uh, contract value? And we'll talk more about this later on Ottenew for for Loris Guriel where you have him? Ottenew,
2: there's an off-season arbitration process where after the season, every team uh, has an opportunity. Every manager basically has an opportunity to add dollars to other teams. It's a way to sort of... Reset the market, make sure guys who are underpaid get, get a little bit of a boost in their salary. We'll talk about that in a lot more detail in like October when it's time to talk about that. Gurriel is a guy who got targeted with that in, in a couple of my leagues. And so he did get hit a little bit. If I look, I've got him in one league at, at $6 which is oh, pretty, pretty wonderful. He, another league that I'm in, he's a $7 player. The most expensive he is in any of the leagues I'm in is $18. And that was a league that was a new league last year. So he got drafted for the first time last year. His average salary across auto new leagues is just under $10, not actually closer to $9, $9.33. Keeping in mind that it's a $400 salary cap with 40 players. That means he's, he's paid below the average player right now. It's a little misleading. The median salary is probably lower than that $10 mean salary. That's, that, that's a guy who, if you were in a new league this year, like I said, the one league I was in last year where it was a new league, he went for for 15 or $16 last year. That's the kind of price I would expect people to be paying for him if they're auctioning now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've got him or if you have an opportunity to trade for him, he's... He's a great value.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm only a few weeks into my first auto new league, and I can tell you that that kind of value on Loris Garell Jr. seems awesome, right? That's that's the league winner. I'm trying to shed myself, and we can get into this more later. Of a $41 Rendon, not because I don't like Rendon, but because of how much of a hit that is to my to my salary, and to have a player like Loris Garell Jr. I mean, that that'd be a flip I'd consider. Yeah, I think
2: big thing, and this isn't this isn't just auto new specific, right? I think it's one of the things people undervalue in all keeper leagues is the value a player has to you is related to both his production and his cost, right? And so, when it, you know, you have to give up a draft pick, right? A lot of keeper leagues have this structure. It's like you give up the same pick you used for the guy last year or something like that. That makes a huge difference, right? Because if I've got a choice between giving up a late pick to keep Gurriel or I'm picking third in the draft and I've got Christian Yelich on my team, do I want to keep Christian Yelich or do I want to keep Gurriel? Yelich is obviously the better player, but that's not actually the question I'm being asked, right? The question I'm being asked is about their value relative to their cost. Giving up the third pick in the draft to keep Yelich doesn't make any sense. It's not a good use of your resources. And so in auto new, that's even more direct because they're, they're actual salaries. And so when we talk about that $41 Rendon, it's $41 is a very concrete thing you can you can talk about. But I think it's one of the things that people underrate in keeper leagues is like being a better player doesn't make you a better fantasy value. It doesn't make you a better fantasy asset, right? Same thing with, with real teams, right? I mean, we just looked at Francisco Lindor getting traded from the Indians to the Mets. His value is entirely tied up in what his contract is and the fact that they only get him for one year. If Cleveland went out and traded Jose Ramirez tomorrow, you can debate whether you think Ramirez or Lindor is a better bet long-term, which of those two guys you think is more valuable for the next decade or something like that. Ramirez is on a cheap contract for multiple years. He would get a lot more in a trade than Lindor would, not because he's five times better. He's just five times more valuable because of his cost. That's one of the things I think is fun about these keeper leagues is you, you get to make those kinds of trade-offs and decisions. And Gurriel a really good example of that, where his value outpaces his or his, his production outpaces his cost by so much that he's more valuable
1: than you would think on its face. It's so true. And it's why guys like us just love keeper leagues, right? It's a whole new dynamic that doesn't even affect redraft leagues in any way. Not that I'm firing shots. I mean, I love my redraft leagues as well. But I mean, that's that's what I'm already loving about this out new. It's like, wait, I'm tr- I'm actively trying to just shed myself of Anthony Rendon. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it, it's what I need to do. I spent a lot of time on Guriel Jr., Anthony Santander, Santander. Chad, can you correct me, please? I'm going to get this wrong all podcasts. It's not Santander. I know it's not that,
2: okay. and I've heard it pronounced Santander and Santander, Sant Santander. I don't know. I, I struggle with <laughs> yeah. it too. It is not okay. Santander. For a long time, I thought it was Anthony Santander, and that is okay. that is like yeah. Midwestern American in me coming out and just completely <laughs> butchering his name. So
1: Santander. I don't know if this is a I don't know if this is a bank in the high, whole country or just here in the Northeast, but we have Santander Bank. And that's what has been really throwing me off because it's spelled the same exact way. Anyway, San- Anthony Santander, uh, bottom line, he's a baller. He's a guy who very sneakily, very sneakily had an 890 OPS in 2020. Now, look, 37 games, I get it. But this is a guy who showed in spurts in 2019 that same kind of awesome production. I mean, he had 20 homers and 20 doubles in 2019 and he's just what 26 years old this is another one of those players i'm keeping my eye on he is cemented into that Orioles lineup it's a nice park to hit in we all know the parks of the al east are great to hit in he's shown some pop if he starts turning these doubles and he's hit a lot of doubles the last two years in limited play time into homers which happens naturally for a lot of these these young bats he's going to be another guy who is just an absolute steal another lords guriel jr who came up with very little hype and just raked, and nobody took it seriously. I mean, last year, he was absolutely dominating for a stretch. I want to say it was in July, and it was like every time I went to to my leagues, he was still owned and like, oh, yeah, he's up from being owned in 30% of leagues to 35% of leagues. Now, if you add in what Chad was just talking about, right, when we talk about like value attached to these players – if you picked up Anthony Santander last year as a free agent, no matter how your keeper league is set up, whether it's new with it with his value of like three dollars or five dollars or whatever it is, or you added him as a free agent, so that just loses you your last round pick. If you're keeping him, you have a guy who, in my mind, has a lot of upside. Again, eight ninety OPS last year. Sure, limited play time, but eight ninety and you're paying nothing for him. That's the kind of value we're looking for here. I think Santander is going to be another guy who flies under the radar um, and ends up being a super valuable player. Could he end up being, for? and his ADP is already up, it's up to like 140, 150. Could he end up being next year's Lords Guriel Jr., where we have this outfielder who's young, who nobody saw coming, who's a top 100. I like to look at his last
2: two seasons combined. over From 2019 to 2020, you get up to 570 plate appearances. And if you sort of think of that as a a single unit, it feels more like a season. I can evaluate 31 homers, sure. 33 doubles, 261, 302, 505 slash line, which that you know that the average is actually not bad. The on base is not very good if you play in on base leagues, but that works out to a 333 wOBA, 107 wRC plus. This is an above average bat. He doesn't walk a ton, but he doesn't strike out a ton either. Is under 20% strikeout rate and his stack cast numbers are are what really intrigues me. He's a fly ball hitter, so he gets the ball in the air. He has a max exit velocity of 113.2, so he is capable of mashing the ball, but his average exit velocity is only 89.5, which isn't bad, but it suggests that there's more power to tap into there. 36.6% hard hit rate, 8.2% barrels. Again, good numbers, not great. Can he tap into that further? Can he start to bring up that average exit velocity and tap into that max exit velocity a little bit more often? Because if he can, there's a lot of potential for for more to happen. The other thing that happened to him last year that that sort of averages out a little bit, if you look at the last two years, his launch angle got really high and he had a lot, he had had way too many fly balls and, and way too many high fly balls. And he needs to sort of bring that back down a little bit his launch angle got up to 24.7 on average but he's this guy who like if you look at what he's done over the last few years there's a clear sign that he, he could bring that launch angle back into a more optimal range he could tap into more of that max exit velocity a little bit more often and because he controls the zone decently well there's a ton of potential there and he's a good example of those kind of guys you're talking about who just You know, he was a rule five pick. He didn't really pan out as a rule five pick. He took a little time to come back. You're only a rule five pick if you don't have a lot of prospect type. And then you lose the ability to be a prospect because you spend a bunch of time in the majors. And so nobody talks about you as a prospect anymore. But man, he's been really good the last couple of years. And I don't think he's, you know, he's not about to break into like any MVP conversations or anything like that. But at the cost to acquire right now, man, there's a
1: ton of upside. Oh, hundred percent. And and you hit the nail on the head there with the max exit velocity. Again, it's it's easy to dismiss that as, as one batted ball event, right? But at the same time, it's showing what these guys are capable of. And I just love this fact about him, that 113 max exit velocity. And I, and I actually like Rowdy Tellez a lot for the same reasons here, was higher than Aaron Judges, Corey Seegers, and Mike Trouts last year, among other notable names. And, and no one is saying he's better than them. Like Chad said, no, he's not winning an MVP, but for fantasy, he could win you a fantasy MVP without a doubt. He's going to see more breaking balls and, and off-speed pitches um, as we progress here, as he continues to mash fastballs and struggle with those. But then be patient. Let him adjust. Let the coaching take place. And let's see what he can do with those pitches. Yeah, and
2: that, and for your point about it being just sort of one really well-hit ball, he's got another, uh, I think, five. He's got five total balls over the last two years over 112 miles per hour another three over 111 so no he's not hitting at 113 every other time that he's up which is part of the issue but he's not just it's not just a thing he happened to you know flukishly do one time he is capable of tapping into 112 mile per hour exit velocity when he when he gets a hold of the ball he just needs to do it
1: more often amen and in that ballpark let's go and, and Chad, the last one I wanted to bring up is my is my Homer spot here. Now, look, uh, Tanner Huck is, is a guy who is coming in with not a lot of hype at all. Uh, he's, he's coming in as an MLB pipeline. He was the Red Sox 10-3 to prospect. But he came up last year for, look, not even 18 innings. I think it was like 17 and two-thirds. But it was against three playoff teams, the Marlins, the Yankees, and the Braves. And he absolutely dominated them. Now, with Huck, the thing is in the minors – the Red Sox wanted to get him more towards a four-seam fastball, okay? What made him so good in college was he had one of the best two-seamers in the country, um, and he had that working with his slider, uh, and, and the Red Sox wanted to push him more in the direction of a four-seam fastball. And he continued to do that last year. The velocity was okay. It was up around 93 miles per hour. I know velocity had been a little bit of a concern for him over the last couple of years. This is a guy who, if he can make those adjustments, if, if we can see the four-seam improve a little bit, he has a dominating slider, and he's got a lot of experience with that two-seamer, this is the type of pitcher I'm looking for, like someone who has now shown us at the major league level. Granted, it's only 17 innings pitch, but is against some really good teams that he can compete, that he's got nasty stuff. That slider is absolutely filthy. He's thrown it almost 36% of the time. And if he can mix in that, that two-seamer enough so that he has that third offering to keep those lefties off balance... He- he could be really, really good. And I'm not even going to look at what his ADP is on draft champions because I'm sure it is well outside the top 200, probably outside the top 300. I know the Red Sox are looking at arms. They just brought back Martin Perez, and they've got Chris, the Chris Sale coming back this year. All, the, all those guys, Erod, hopefully. So his spot might be a little questionable in the early going, but I think he's proven that he's a guy who's under strong consideration for a spot in that rotation. The Red Sox need the pitching. They're talking about maybe going to a six-man rotation. And again, we're also looking long term. I think this guy has the tools. He has an elite pitch. He's working on the fastball. He has three offerings at three different speeds. He could be a solid fantasy starter going forward with strikeout potential.
2: I don't really have a lot to add to to Hauk. I think uh, part of his lack of hype is I'm not even super familiar with him. So I've been listening intently. His NFBC ADP is about 386 on average uh so you're you're right he's he's pretty late there you know let's see what the red sox do but at least as of right now you're right that team needs pitching and i think one of the things that's that's underrated opportunity right And, and unless the red sox go out and make a bunch of additions he could have a few bad starts and have the opportunity to keep working through it whereas if he were on a team with a little bit of a deeper staff you run into the risk of like oh he's got two or three bad starts and now he's down in AAA trying to figure things out, he's going to get a
1: chance. Uh, at least he should, because <laughs> they don't have a lot of better options out there. They do not. They do not. And he he does have a little bit of pedigree. I mean, Look, he's 6'5. Uh, he's got a huge frame, 230, long limbs. He was a first round pick. So there is some pedigree coming from here. I think it's just more of like really monitors fastball, folks. If you're if you're watching spring training and you're watching Tanner Hook, let's look look at that four seamer. How fast is it going? Is it generating the swings and misses? Because look, he will be capped. If the fastball never comes around, his ceiling is capped and he's probably not even worth considering in fantasy. But this is, this is what we're looking for in these long, like, give me great value. Well, here's a guy who just gave us three excellent starts, has an elite slider. I'll dare say elite. I mean, his, his control and command is a little not there yet, but all he needs is that adjustment with the fastball and he's going to be awesome. And he's going to get the opportunities. So with that said, Chad, we're going to talk about some guys who made changes that back up the breakouts. And who'd you have in mind for that, Chad?
2: Yes, yeah, so there's two names I want to talk about here. One of them, if you go look me up on Pitcher List, I wrote a, an extensive article on on Dominic Smith. He's a guy who coming into 2019, uh, there's a great interview with him. I, I linked to it from my piece. There's a great interview with him at Baseball America, where he talks about feeling like he didn't have a swing the way he wanted it. The guys he was watching to try to figure out what to do the adjustments he made. In the article I wrote, I break down exactly what those adjustments are. He changed his stance. He 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 changed his swing a little bit. And the results since the start of 2019 are so stark for him and how much better he's been. And when I talk to people, I still hear people being like, yeah, I mean, but it's a small sample size. It's only been a couple of years. He didn't play full-time in 2019. He played full-time in 2020, but it was only 60 games. Like, but there's a real change behind it, right? And I think one of the things that you're always looking for, or at least I'm always looking for, is why did this guy suddenly get better? And if sometimes they suddenly get better because the ball just starts falling in. And sometimes they suddenly get better because they randomly have a year where they hit a ton of line drives. And sometimes they get better because they made a distinct change that made them a better player. Those are the guys who I'm really excited about and who I think are are often undervalued. I felt that way about Smith coming into the 2020 season, bought heavily on him, paid off very well. I'm I'm still all in on him. But the guy from last year who who made a change that I think is is interesting is Will Myers. And so Myers, of course, you know, huge prospect when he first came up, lots of excitement about him, and has been uh, we'll say he's been up and down since then. He's he's had not the career I think people expected. He hasn't been terrible, but he hasn't been particularly great. But Myers is another guy who, in the 2020 season, seems to have made a a, a real change. And there's another article. There's a Pitcher List article. If you go to Pitcher List and search for Will Myers, Dan Richards wrote a piece on him a few months ago that that looks at what that change is. Again, a guy who who changed his stance he's a little bit more in a, in a little bit more of a crouch when he swings. He seems to have a better eye for the ball as a result. I don't know if he's it's making him quicker to the ball. I don't know what it is. But when I look at his sort of apparent breakout in 2020, um, or maybe a re-breakout for Myers, there's something behind it that backs it up. And so when I see something like that, like, oh, he made a change, that change has translating into results. Now it's like, well, all he has to do is keep that change up, right? If he If he continues to make that that adjustment, good things should keep happening. And so I'm I'm super intrigued by Myers, who won't cost a lot to acquire, but I think the 2020 season is is more real than people are giving it credit for. He's going NFBC ADP is outside the top 125. Is it 128 right now? I'm I'm super interested in him and he's still young enough that for keeper leagues, you know, I'm never looking more than maybe two, three years out in a keeper league anyways, because who knows how long guys are going to last? Who knows how long values are going to change? Things like that. He's young enough that you still can sit on Myers for a couple of years and get real
1: value out of. Him. So, Chad, let me ask because when we hear about these adjustments, right? Is there a statistic, a particular stat that you're looking toward? Because when I when I looked at Myers and I looked at Dom Smith, you know, the first thing my eyes go through is K rate, right? And I hear an adjustment at the play, I'd be like, all right, well, how? how much more comfortable is he at the plate? Is he swinging a miss and less so on and so forth? And, you know, the carry for Dom Smith has pretty much stayed the same for Will Myers. It went down great from 2019, like in the right direction, but it was just closer to his career average. But when I looked at the barrel percentage, the barrel rate, both of those guys saw a huge leap. Is that kind of an indicator to you? Like, all right, now this guy's locked in. He's seeing the ball. This adjustment must be working. So in most
2: cases... I don't know why a player made an adjustment, right? Unless, except in a case like the interview with Dominic Smith, where he actually talked about what he did and why he did it. You often don't know why they made the adjustment. And sometimes it's because they feel like they're swinging through too many pitches. Sometimes it feels like they've been too passive. It's a little bit hard to say. It, with Smith, what I saw, what really started was I saw that he performed much better. I went back to look at why he performed much better. You get into things like his contact rate went up and his contact quality went up. He was hitting the ball much, much harder after the change than he was before. If you look at Smith over sort of two-year periods, he went from a 28.9% K rate over 2017 and 18 to 22.5 after the change in 2019 and 20. His walk rate went from 5.4% up to 8.3% over that time. So he did make those changes. He also, he chased a little bit less, but his Z swing went up so he started swinging in the zone. He took fewer strikes. And so he started getting a little bit more aggressive in the zone. His contact percentage went up a little bit, including his, his contact on pitches outside the zone. And so he started to, what I saw was a guy who made a comment before the 2019 season about, I feel like I, I need to make this change to be able to read pitches better. And all of a sudden, he's now swinging less at pitches he can't hit and more at pitches he can. And when he does swing, he was making much better contact his hard hit rates went up, barrel rate went up. And so I look at that and it's like, all right, this is a guy who who made a change in order to make better contact and started making better contact. With Myers, I don't have as much of insight into why he made the change he made. And so it's not that there's a specific stat. I think for me, it, it works the other way. It's like, I see a change in the stats and then I want to go back and figure out is there a change that could theoretically theoretically explain why there was a change in the stats what i don't want to see or what i worry about is wow this guy suddenly got a lot better and there's no real explanation for it right yeah he's striking out less but he's sw- he's chasing just as often and his his contact rates haven't really changed and there's no new stance and there's nothing else. Like, nothing's different. He's the same guy that just the strikeout rate went down. It's like, okay, well, what's going to stop it from going right back up again next week? I, I have no idea. With, with Myers and Smith and, and some others like that, what I'm seeing is it might be that the strikeout rate went down. It might be that the contact rate went up. It might be that their contact got better. It might be they started hitting more home runs. Like, there's a bunch of things that it could be. But then I want to go back from that and say, okay, well, why? What changed? What reason do I have to believe that that's going to keep happening? Another guy who I think there's some some validity to that is Eric Hosmer, who started hitting for more power earlier in the year, and then had some injury issues and stuff this year. But if you go back and look at him, his launch angle went up. He he, he spent years telling everyone that like this launch angle of voodoo is nothing and nobody should be worried about it. And then he changed his launch angle and look what happened. When I look at... At that, again, it's like okay. There's an explanation for that. There's a reason to believe in that. Now, Hosmer, it's a shorter sample because he didn't play as much last year. I'm not quite as sold on him as I am on Myers, but he's a guy who's probably worth looking into deeper and understand. Like, did he make an intentional change to get the ball up more? Because if he did that, and it followed that the launch angle went up, and it followed that the home runs went up, that's a change I can believe in. Right? That's something I can really like. I can bank on that. Whereas. If he just happened to hit more fly balls for a week because he just happened to hit more fly balls for a week, that's not that interesting.
1: Sure, sure. No, that adds up. And, and, you know, looking at the the Dominic Smith batted ball profile, um, you know, you mentioned launch angle with with Hosmer. I looked at, you know, Smith lowered his launch angle and he was already an above average line drive hitter. He went up to hitting 39% line drives last year. All these things, the 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 barrel percentage, the line drive rate, the hard hit, rate, all that stuff indicates there's definitely a clear change. There. I think that's a really good call on Dom Smith. I am going to be, you've convinced me, Chad, I'm, I'm going to be buying in on Dom Smith this year without a shadow of a doubt.
2: Yeah, he's a, he's a favorite of mine. I'm always happy to talk Dom Smith. <laughs>
1: <laughs> too bad he wasn't in that package going back I to know, your Indians.
2: I know. Oh, wouldn't that have been?
1: I would have been so ecstatic we- if he had ended up in, in Cleveland, <laughs> but. You, know, all you have his jersey. <laughs> well, the one last thing I wanted to just throw out there. I, I think both Myers and Dom Smith, their playtime is safe, but do you think there's a real added benefit to if the National League does adopt the D H this year? I think both of those guys might be a little bit more relaxed, less wear and tear. I think they're both dudes that would see opportunities at D H.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I th- There's probably some upside in games played for both of them, if that happens, right? I think Smith is a guy who he's he's been so good and I believe so strongly in how good he is that I think he's you know he's gonna play 130-ish games, and the reality is that in fantasy, no, like very few players are getting up over like 150 anyways, and 130 versus 150. Especially if you're in a daily league where you can replace him, like it just it doesn't make that much of a difference. There is some upside for him to get more of that. I, I do think that the Mets, I mean, you've got uh, Alonzo and Smith sharing first base. You've got Smith in the left field mix along with JD Davis, along with you know maybe they they get Springer. Like who knows what's going to happen there? There's just so many questions. I think he's too good to be to be that concerned about it. But I do think. If they get the DH, it, it takes that off the table. It'll clear things up and it'll, like you said, maybe DH is enough to, to stay rested, although he only was DH five times in, in 2020. Um, they mostly used him in left field and first base. He's the better defensive first baseman of the pair. It clears things up a little bit, but I don't think I don't think he'll lose time. Similar thing with Myers. I think if if that change for Myers is legit, DH or no DH, he's gonna be in the lineup, you know, basically every day. But is he a guy who could benefit from DHing occasionally and staying rested and stuff like that? Perhaps, yeah. And it would again yes. take that take that concern off the table,
1: a hundred percent. And I, I'm really I'm more concerned for Jake Cronenworth now that Haseon Kim is is in San Diego. I'm more concerned for him than I'm concerned for Will Myers. But it would just be so just just take the DH. It's so much better, right? You're an American League yeah. guy, Chad. Like the DH is the way to go get it back. Let's, let's put some things at ease here. So Chad, let's, let's dive into uh, new because I find this absolutely fascinating. I think it is fantasy baseball in its peak form. So where do we find uh, new values? Let's, let's, let's talk this through.
2: One thing to do, the easiest way to just quickly get values is look up Justin Vibber. Uh, he's got a Patreon. He can be found on Twitter at Justin Vibber. On there. He puts out something called the Surplus Calculator every year. The Surplus Calculator is really intended to help you figure out guys whose value, who, who have surplus, which means that their value outpaces their cost. But he puts in projected values based on uh, Steamer and Zips projections. And so it gives you a place to, to sort of look up some values. You can also see a player's average values on AutoNew. If you're in AutoNew, you go to the Players tab. There's a, a link there to Average Salaries. And that'll give you a sense of sort of what the market price for a guy is. Now, the market price is not always the same as what they produce, especially this time of year when people are making a bunch of cuts and stuff. But it, it gives you a sense of what's going on. So that gives you a sense of sort of find those values. And Then then the big question that I was asking myself in, in Outer New is, where are guys whose whose cost doesn't keep up with what their actual value is? And there's a couple categories of guys who who stand out to me. What I did this year to sort of poke around at this was I took those values that Justin Vipper creates, compared them to those average salaries I just told you about, and looked for guys who have the largest gap between their value and their average salary. Number one on that list is number one on a lot of lists of a lot of things, and that's Juan Soto. Juan Soto's average salary in auto new is about $44. His value, according to that surplus calculator, is about $70. And That's in Fangraph's points leagues, which are the most common auto new leagues. That's a twenty-six dollar gap, right? That's enough money. You are you are getting seventy dollars of value and saving enough money to buy another well above average player with the amount of money you save on Soto. Soto is you know, Soto is Soto. Uh, but what, what it what it illustrates, I think, is a case that happens in AutoNew where despite the fact that salaries go up every year, despite the arbitration process I talked about um, earlier, which helps to sort of get prices back in line with values, guys who break out take a little while to catch up to their value. And so Soto, another year from now, his average salary is going to probably be in the 50s or 60s, and he's not going to be the same value he is right now. But right now, he's still catching up because he's been so good. Fernando Tatis Jr. is another one of these guys who his average salary is $30. He's a $50 player. Easy. And it's not that people don't recognize that. It's not that nobody thinks he's a $50 player. It's that his salary just hasn't caught up yet, and so those are those are guys who I'm always looking for is Tyler Glass now, Denelson Lemet, even Shane Bieber is still he's a twenty seven dollar average salary, a forty five dollar value. These are these are players whose it's not that their market price hasn't caught up to how good they are. I think people are aware. It's that it takes time and not new for salaries to catch up, and there's an opportunity to capitalize on that. And so if you have a guy like Soto, like Lamette, like Bieber at a good price, you either ride that value or if you trade them, you ask the world for them because they're worth so much more than their cost. And if you are in a position to trade for one of those guys, jump at it, right? Figure out a way to get those guys on your team because the the way you win in in any of these leagues or even in a redraft league, the way you win is get, by getting production that outpaces the cost, right? You get 20th round pick and performs like a fifth round pick, and your fifth round pick performs like a first round pick, you're in great shape. In keeper leagues and in auto new, you have an opportunity to buy that surplus early on, right? To say, I don't have to wait and see if I can get a fifth round value for my 20th round pick. You can pick up a guy who you know is a fifth round value and keep him at the cost of a 20th round pick, and you've locked that in, you know, in, in out of new leagues, again, it's the dollar figure, right? It's the $70 player who only costs 50 or the $50 player who only costs 30, or even the $15 player who only costs five. And one of the best ways to find those is guys who everyone knows what their market value is, they would go for that 15 or 30 or whatever it is they're worth. But they don't cost that yet.
1: That's that's all awesome, and I, I think it, it really creates an interesting dynamic that separates new from keeper leagues. And that maybe in a keeper league, you know, let's say you took Jose Abreu in the ninth round, and then he had this monster year. So now you only have to give up a ninth round pick to keep Jose Abreu. That's nice. But after that, you don't you don't get that value anymore. Whereas on new. like I, when when I took over this team, there's a lot of superstars on this team. I, I should be most fantasy owners would be excited, but the the player i'm most excited about is Eloy Jimenez for 15 bucks and and he's going to be a steal for years now not just this season i mean granted he's going to go through the, the the same offseason process that all these players go through but it's going to take a while for him to be costing as much as he's actually worth yeah i
2: mean if i look at eloy he jumps out on that same list that that soto does of guys who his average salary is about $21 his value is around 37 so again, it's not a case where if you were in a brand new auto new league, everyone's drafting fresh. Do I think he goes for $15? No. Do I think he goes for $20? No, he's gonna go for 30, 35 bucks. People know how good he is. It's not his market value. It's just that it takes right. time for that to adjust. And, you know, this coming off season, what you're going to see with Eloy is he's going to go up $2 because everyone goes up $2. That's sort of the natural increase in salaries. And then he's going to get hit in that arbitration process. And what you said, yours is a, you have a $15 Eloy? Yep. so he's gonna go up to 17 he'll probably get hit with like seven to ten dollars in arbitration something like that and so he'll end up being a 24 25 26 dollar salary by next season he like he said, sure. but he's a 40 dollar player so who cares he, right. right you know yeah it's better to have him at 15 than at 25 but you're you're gonna have another year maybe two years before you're even paying market price for him and those guys
1: are just if you can get them and grab them and sit on them. Oh yeah, now that, that, easily my most excited player. And just so folks get an example, I'm paying Eloy right now 15 bucks, and Anthony Rizzo 38. And so it, it really is an interesting dynamic, an interesting take on fantasy that I just think is is phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. The other the other category of guys
2: who who I think are tend to be undervalued from a salary perspective are sort of post hype guys right? The guys who big-time prospects, and I think this, again, this is auto new, but I think it's also true in keeper leagues. They came up as big-time prospects. Their prices got inflated because of their prospect status. They disappointed. Now their prices have dropped, but they're still the same guy and they still have that potential. And so, you know, I look at like really top prospects, guys like Keston Hira, Vlad Guerrero Jr. like these are guys who when they came out people were like here is going to be in top 3 second baseman and Vlad's going to be the best hitter baseball's ever seen and like people paid for them either in draft capital or in, or in auction capital as if that was going to be the case and they both been fine but neither of them have been that good but like the, cap- the 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 capabilities that they have are still there and so if you can get them now for you know, get them from a disappointed owner, right? Find that owner who who has Hira for seven, eight, nine dollars, and no longer believes in the the twenty dollar, thirty dollar upside. There's some risk in that, but it's it's a really nice place to be. You can also go down a, le- a level from those guys and look at like an Austin Riley or a Josh Naylor, who are guys who the hype wasn't as big, right? Neither of those guys <laughs> was a you know top overall prospect. Nobody expected what they expected from the other two. Um, but are guys who came up with some prospect pedigree had some pretty good potential, haven't really lived up to it. They're both still young and they both still are, are looking likely Naylor in particular, because Cleveland doesn't have any other bats. So they might as well play him. But Riley looks like he's <laughs> pretty much locked in as the third baseman in Atlanta. So these are guys who are, they're going to get a chance. The talent that made people believe in them is still there. And, and you can get them for, I think a lot less than their, than their worth. And so Again, if I go back to those average salaries versus their their values, looking at all four of those guys, Vlad is a $25 average salary, a $35, 36 value according to steamer projections. Kira is a $12 average value with about a $16, $17 steamer projected value. Austin Riley, his average value, his average salary is seven dollars, but his, his projected value is more like thirteen. Naylor, you, his average salary is only four or five bucks, and he may get cut in a bunch of places. Steamer thinks he's a ten-dollar player. Now, ten-dollar player isn't going to change your your season, but you get enough five-dollar salaries on ten-dollar players, and it adds up pretty quickly. Not only does it do you get production that outpaces your your value, but if you have like four, three or four. Five dollar guys, guys, you're paying five dollars who produce at ten. That buys you the money to spend forty dollars on a guy who's going to produce at forty dollars and put your offense over the top without being worried about it because you filled out the rest of your lineup with with
1: production. That's such a good point, and 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 you're right that it, that definitely this mindset carries over into your standard non hot new leagues, right? I mean, this idea of, and we've talked about examples of the past, these prospects who come up and they're not immediately performing, they're super hyped and they don't perform. And then there's this consensus of like, yeah, well, who's the next top top prospect, right? I mean, Joe Adele comes to mind. and, And in the past, Alex Bregman got off to a super slow start. Mike Trout got off to a super slow start. And it was like, these guys, obviously those two ended up being bargains. Could the same happen for Joe Adele? Could the same happen for Gavin Lux? They're no longer, you know, the Wander Franco or the Mackenzie Gore, the guys who are now ready for. They're kind of forgotten about, put on the back burner. And I think there's there could be a lot of value there. Now, for Joe Adele this year, who knows? I know Madden said he's going to start the year in the minors, and he clearly has some stuff to figure out, particularly to play discipline. But... At the same time, I think it's it's this short attention span that's like, all right, they didn't pan out. Who's next? And it's like, well, hold on a second. There's value here. These are good players. And I love your pick of Josh Naylor because roster resource has him batting second this year, which if he's in the two hole, look, that lineup's going to be atrocious. But if you get a whole year of, of a player with that kind of power potential batting in the two hole, I mean, that's. That has to be ten dollar value, right? I mean, come on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that is a lot of value if he if he's actually in that spot. And I, I think that if you, you know, we'll have to see how that lineup plays out because there's a lot of question marks there. But if you're in the you're in the tool, you get a lot of plate appearances. The two guys hitting behind him, and, and these guys I do think are pretty much I, I don't know, we'll have to see. I think Jose Ramirez likely ends up hitting second with Naylor potentially third. Even better. Right. But then he's then he's sandwiched between Jose Ramirez and Franmil Reyes, which is not a bad place to be. You've got a guy in front of you who gets on base at an extremely high rate and is a great base runner to drive in. And you've got a guy behind you who's gonna hit enough home runs to make sure you score a decent number of runs. And like that combination is is a pretty good place to be, you know. There won't be anyone else on
1: base, but, but those three. <laughs> hold on, hold on, because I, like I know there's some stuff came out yesterday. Andres Jimenez, Cleveland said he might be getting the year in the minor leagues, but if if he and, and Ahmed Rosario are some kind of like leadoff platoon situation, I, I think that has some upside. This does come from the eleven dollar Ahmed Rosario owner, which I have some question marks about, but I think there's some upside there. I mean, those are those are fast; they can get on base. I, Maybe knock it on base, but they are fast. There's, there. If you're batting third, I don't care what the lineup is, man. If you're that cheap and you're batting third, I I would like to roster you. Sure, For sure.
2: I I agree. You know, in in auto new leagues, and it's it's even easier in other keeper leagues usually. But in auto new leagues, if you cut a guy, you're stuck with half his salary as a, as a cap penalty until either someone else picks it up or until you re add the player 30 days later or something like that. If you spend five bucks on Naylor and he sucks and gets sent down and you decide you're done with him, you move on in, in you know, even outside Auto of new, where usually there's no cost to cutting a guy, like your cost to acquire that guy into roster that player is so low. And so what you're, what you're paying for, what you're going for there is the upside, right? I'm going to pay five bucks. Maybe he's a $15 bat or a $10 bat. And if he's not, I move on. And I haven't really lost very much. You compare that to like a guy who's a $15 bat, who's going to cost you $15, You've used fifteen dollars in draft capital. Or you used, you know, in that case, let's say a an eighth or ninth round pick instead of whatever you'd have to use on Naylor. It's it's a big difference in in what you've given up to get there. It's it's if you can get that kind of upside that cheap, it's it's a great opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, Chad, we had planned a odd new question of the day for you because. I am brand new to this. I'm still learning the ropes and I definitely have a bunch of questions. I think this is going to be helpful for our listeners. Those of you who want to explore Otnu, new, I encourage you to do so. I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm having a lot of fun with fantasy baseball in January, folks. So this is this is awesome. So Chad, are you ready for my my new question of the day? Do it. All right, let's do it. So right now I'm at about 450 bucks and I need to be under, well, at or under $400 by January 31st. Um, and I have... Anthony Rendon, who, even though I'd much rather cut Anthony Rizzo, and, I, and and of course, any owner would rather do that, I wouldn't have a first baseman in that case, and I already have Bregman. I, I, I'm fine at third base, as it is. So when trying to get under this $400 threshold, does there come a point when it's better to just cut an elite player than to try and trade him away which is going to be hard to do to begin with because most people are also struggling to get under $400. But let's say I said, all right, I'm going to trade Anthony Rendon for, for Tanner Houck because I clearly like Houck and he's cheap and it get me under where I'm trying to get. Now, assuming the owner even accepts that. And I know that offer sounds like absolute blasphemy to people in any other kind of league, is that something you would do? Or is it better to just let the other owners bid for him and not give some owner the advantage of turning Tanner Houck into one of the best third baseman's in baseball? It's a good question. The first thing I would say is I'm going to talk about your, your Anthony Rizzo
2: piece of this for a moment, which is I wouldn't over-index, and this varies a little bit by league, I don't over-index about hitting the keeper deadline with all of my spots filled. I want to make sure I'm keeping the right values, right? Like let's get extreme here and say, you know, Rizzo at $38 is expensive but not totally crazy maybe. I think I think he's a little overpriced. You know, let's say he was a $57 Anthony Rizzo or something like that, right? And he was your only first baseman. You wouldn't be like, "Well, I'm going to burn almost 20% of my salary on this first baseman who's right. not worth it." Like you would just move on. And and I think you have to make you have to be sort of harsh like that in in your, your decisions, even when it's not quite so obvious. And so I don't know, I would, I would move on from Rizzo and I would figure in the auction, I'll find a first baseman. You're gonna need a first baseman and a utility bat, but there's no corner infield. So the utility sort of acts like a corner infield. So like you've got some options there. And if I'm looking at like, look, I'm going to go into the auction. I'm looking at your roster right now. So you've got your, your expensive players. You've got a, You've got a bunch of expensive shortstops. You've got a thirty-six dollar Lindor, a thirty-three dollar Bregman, a twenty-eight dollar Trey Turner. Bregman can also obviously play third base. I think moving on from your eleven dollar Ahmed Rosario is a nice easy choice to, to cut, given your other shortstop options. But I look at that and it's like, you know, I don't know. I, I if I keep Rendon, I've got a third baseman. If I cut him, I really don't. If I cut Rizzo, I don't really have a first baseman. But other teams are going to cut first baseman and third baseman. There will be guys available in auction. There'll be opportunities to make trades after auction. And so I tend to be a believer that, like, I would rather go in with a spot empty than keep a guy I really don't think is worth it. Now, I think you have to define what worth it means. Rizzo, I don't think is worth $38. Rendon, I do think is worth $40. And so I would rather have Rendon on my roster and feel like I've got a stud third baseman. Let me give you an example from my roster in that league. So my roster in that league, the only third baseman I have, I think. Let me double check and make sure this is true. I've got. A, I actually have. A, I have a few guys who can play third base, but the big third baseman I have is a thirty-one dollar Josh Donaldson. I'm not sure. I believe that Josh Donaldson's worth thirty-one dollars. The other third baseman on my roster is like Gene Segura can play third base, but I would never use him there. Hunter Dozier plays third base. He's twelve dollars. He's sort of borderline. Yuli Gurriel plays third base. He's twelve dollars. I think he's probably overpriced given his age. Um, Nolan Jones, I've got. I'm very excited about, but I can't rely on him. I, I don't really have another great option at third base. If I cut Donaldson or if I trade Donaldson, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find a third baseman at the auction, almost for sure. But I would rather do that than spend $31 on a guy I don't think is worth $31. Sure. Getting back to your original question of is it better to just cut them than to trade them for way too little of a return? There's differing opinions on this. My my personal opinion is I would always rather trade for something I'm excited to keep than just let a guy go. And like, let's say you cut Rendon and he goes for fifty dollars instead of forty, right at the auction. Yeah, you've taken ten dollars off of one of your opponents, but like the impact to you of that is less than a dollar on average, right? Every team, every other team in the league benefits by about a dollar by that ten dollars going away. It's just not that big a deal. It's not helping you that much. There's not that much value. Now, if you cut him and he went for 60 or 70 bucks, that could be a big deal. But if he's gonna cut and go for 60 or 70 bucks, then he's he's worth way more than that 40, and there's no reason to get rid of him. And so from my perspective, if I've decided I've got to cut a guy, I would rather cut, I would rather trade him even for some random piece I'm excited to keep than, than not. That said, I think you again you have to be cautious about like what what are you willing to trade for? And so like I you know Hauk is a guy who I don't know he's he's three dollars. I don't know if Robert who who has him on his roster is planning on keeping him or not. There's a decent chance he gets cut. You've got to make a decision about like is that really what I want to do with my Rendon? With with Rizzo, if you could trade Rizzo. I would probably take whatever I could get for a $38 Rizzo with Rendon. I want a real return or else I'm going to just keep him. And I'll That's find right. other ways. The other, the other suggestion I would make is a roster organizer, where you can basically set a lineup in the offseason. And you can move guys around in there and set them to cut or to trade, depending on what you think you're going to do with them. And it takes their salary off. You can go into the roster organizer if you're in Auto new, if you just click on your roster name, your team name at the top of the page, so that team name tab, it'll take you there. But when you move a guy to cut or trade, it takes them off of your roster count and your cap count at the top of the page. And so you can play around with like, all right, well, after I cut these 12 guys who I know I definitely want to cut, oh, it turns out that I can actually keep both Rendon and Rizzo if I want to, because I found other places to cut my 50 bucks. Take advantage of that and figure out what's really going on. If I were you, I mean, I think if you can get a good value for Rendon, I would I would trade him. I think a $40 Rendon is a, is a solid piece. And look, I made you a trade offer for him last week. I obviously think he's worth keeping. I think if you can trade him and you can get something that helps your team and helps you cut costs, that it makes sense to do that. And if not, uh, I would keep him and have him anchor your offense.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's all awesome. I mean, the, really, the impetus for, for, for trading, wanting to trade Rendon is definitely the salary cap, but also I am... I'm very hitter heavy. Um, and my pitching, my best pitcher is Clevenger, who's obviously going to be out for the season. I have some pieces that I like that that could benefit. I mean, I got a two dollar Logan Gilbert that I got kind of expectations for. Three dollar Tyone. You know, I, I I've got pieces that could could work out, but I don't know if it's a rotation that even if everything goes as well as I hope, that it's capable of winning anything. But you're right. I mean, as of right now, if if I'm not able to to square up a deal. It's Rizzo that's that's getting cut in a in a few other pieces to get me under that limit. It should leave me with enough money, I hope, at the auction. I know that that we have to have what one dollar at least per, per bench spot, empty bench spot. Chad, is that right?
2: Yeah, you have to have dollar per open spot. I mean, basically the the it's a four hundred dollar cap, but you have to have room to have a full forty man roster. The one exception to that is guys who go on the sixty day IL. Guys who uh, opt out, if there's opt outs again this year, which I don't know if there will be or not, there's a few cases like that where players don't count against your 40 man cap and you don't actually have to save a dollar for that spot. So in some cases, you'll see a team has like 43 players and they might have two open spots, but no money available, but that's okay. But yeah, if you have have 39 players on your roster, you also have to have at least a
1: dollar free to theoretically buy that 40th player, even if you choose not to. That makes sense. That makes sense. So the odd new question of the day, Chad, you lived up to the expectations. I think that was beautiful. I'm feeling much more comfortable myself and folks, hopefully you more importantly feel good about your odd new squads. Chad, I think that's going to be wrapping it up for us. Is there any final thoughts? No, I'm just, uh, I'm excited
2: for this first episode to get, get in the bank and let, let's go rattle off another couple hundred of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me, folks. Please, please, please follow us on Twitter at, at keep or cut. Definitely send us your questions. Chad and I would love to break down your keeper questions. And really that's the thing with keeper leagues. They're all so unique on you league, so unique, so against the grain, not what we're used to. Everybody can be in a unique keeper league. There's, there's tons out there. Um, so give us your questions, your specific questions so that we can give you specific feedback. And again, please follow us. So folks, uh, look for episodes. More and more often, I'd say, as the season gets started, Chad, I think we're looking at putting out about one per week at a minimum. And certainly anything that we've released, we're going to be posting to Twitter. So folks, I think that does it for us. This is Keep or Cut. We'll see you next week.